Well, we now come to the preaching of God's word, and we're going to be in John chapter 20, and we're going to cover 18 verses today, but I want to just begin by reading the opening opening 10. So turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to begin by reading verses 1 to 10. And it reads, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. We finally come now to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb is no mere footnote in the flow of redemptive history. It is incredibly consequential. In fact, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Everything hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection vindicates the atoning work of Christ. It has satisfied the wrath of God, for he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. 1 John 2, 2. The resurrection is also instrumental in our justification, which is the declaration by God in the court of heaven that we are righteous by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. Since... Jesus, our Lord, was both delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification, Romans 4.25. In fact, your own salvation hinges on your belief in the resurrection. Since salvation is conditioned on confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10.9. Simply put, no resurrection, no salvation. And it's now that we come to John's account of the resurrection. And what becomes clear is that the disciples were not expecting Jesus to die and rise again. And this in spite of the fact that he had declared it to them numerous times in advance. In fact, Luke makes this point in his gospel. When on the heels of Jesus proclaiming yet again his impending death and resurrection, Luke writes this. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said, Luke 18, 34. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to rise from the grave. And that becomes all the more striking when you consider the chief priests and Pharisees. 
since Matthew indicates that they recalled Jesus making this claim and as such went to Pilate to ensure the tomb was both guarded and secured as they sought to try and prevent a further deception from taking place, ironically resulting in further evidence that Jesus, in fact, died and rose again. And you need to see this, just to kind of have the broader context of of even the, the, the resurrection account in the Gospel of John. So turn to Matthew 27 for a moment. And just notice how the, the actions of the chief priests and Pharisees actually function to both validate and vindicate the resurrection of Christ. In Matthew 27 and verse 62, it says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, so the preparation day is Friday. This is the next day, the day after that, Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So the Pharisees and chief priests recall this claim. Verse 64, therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they thought that they would ultimately guard the, the tomb, seal the stone, put guards there and present to ensure that no deception took place. And in the process, only strengthen the evidence of the resurrection. You say, well, how so? Look at chapter 28 and verse two and following. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Verse four, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They didn't witness Jesus. They didn't see the resurrected Christ but they witnessed the earthquake, they witnessed the presence of an angel, they witnessed the rolling, way, the rolling way of the stone. And the fact that there were angels present indicate the activity of God. They saw. And then this testimony was given to the chief priests in verse 11 and following. Look at that, it says there, Matthew 28, verse 11, now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. They're testifying to the chief priests what took place. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep, which if they were asleep, they would not have been aware of. Verse 14, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So they sought to prevent what they deemed to be a further deception and then covered it up 
covered up the truth with a deception, all the while proving the very thing they sought to deny. It's amazing. But the point is this, the disciples were not expecting the resurrection. They weren't even in a position to concoct a plan to fabricate the resurrection. They were discouraged and dejected. They were in grief and mourning. And as we'll see next time, they were hiding for fear of the Jews. And that brings us to John's account of the empty tomb, where Jesus has not only risen from the grave, but makes his first post-resurrection appearance. And we're gonna frame it that way. We're gonna see the resurrection of Jesus in verses one to 10, and the appearance of Jesus in verses 11 to 18. So if you're taking notes, jot this down, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, look at verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You'll note that it's the first day of the week, which of course is Sunday. Jesus died and was buried on preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, that's Friday. He was in the tomb all day Saturday and he rose early on the third day, which is Sunday. And though Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicate that a number of women went to the tomb, it would seem that Mary Magdalene went first and either left for the tomb while it was still dark or arrived at the tomb while it was still dark. And she even likely arrived and fled before the others had even gotten there. So Mary was the the first one to get there and arrived and fled as we'll see in a moment, to report to Peter and John and then missed an interaction with two angels that the other women are present to witness. Even though we'll see in our text later on that Mary would later have interaction with an angel of her own. And the purpose for these women going was to complete the burial of Jesus. They may have felt that since the the burial of Christ was rushed, given the onset of the Sabbath, that it was incomplete. And so they went to complete what may have been lacking to ensure that Jesus received an honorable burial. And again, this signals that they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They were going to the tomb to prepare his body for the the burial. In fact, there doesn't even appear to be an inkling in that direction, at least in Mary. And so when she sees that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb and that it was empty, there's only one possibility in her mind. The body of Jesus has been stolen. Verse two, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Mary is distressed and sees this development as simply adding grief to grief, robbing a grave was culturally offensive to the Jews. And as history would have it, it later became a criminal offense worthy of capital punishment according to Roman law and was therefore no small crime. And yet it happened rather frequently. 
But Peter and John, they want to see it for themselves. And maybe even the news that had come to them from Mary was the first spark of resurrection hope in their hearts. Because when Mary delivers the message that that the tomb is empty, they decide they're going to book it for the tomb. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, you'll note here that John is the author, and he has been very careful to point out that he ran ahead faster than Peter, that he got to the tomb first. And so John is clearly competitive, (laughs) which I appreciate. Who doesn't enjoy a bit of friendly competition? Verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Why not? Why did he seemingly wait for Peter? Was it because Peter is the bona fide leader of the bunch, even following his denials? Was John trying to avoid ceremonial defilement by coming in contact with the dead? We don't know. But the linen wrappings, lying where they were, was the first indication that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because if his body had been stolen, it would have been stolen with the linen wrappings left on, not only due to the the value of the wrappings, but also due to the ease with which they would have been able to move the body while wrapped. Verse six, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rather rolled up in a place by itself. True to form, Peter arrives and he goes right into the tomb, no hesitation. And the picture that John paints here is an empty tomb in orderly condition. The the wrappings in one place, the faith cloth neatly rolled up in another, no sign of foul play. In fact, everything pointing in the exact opposite direction. And the significance of the, the linen wrappings and face cloth being as they were seems to be that Jesus passed right through them. I mean, Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, had to be unbound. The the linen wrappings were wrapped around the body. And so so when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he exhorted the people to unbind him. There was no unbinding of Jesus. He just simply passed through the linen wrappings. Much the same way he will later enter a locked room without unlocking the door and without going through the doorway. Verse 8 So the disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. This was the moment that John first understood and believed the resurrection. Once he had seen everything as it was, he knew that Jesus had risen from the dead and therefore had believed in the resurrection without actually seeing the resurrected Christ which is significant because there's going to be a theme that develops from here that will find its completion in verse 29, where Jesus will say to Thomas, 
Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. John believes in the resurrection at this point, and he hasn't even yet seen the resurrected Christ. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What John is saying is that at this point in time, having seen the tomb as it was, his belief in the resurrection was not grounded in the witness of the scripture, in the witness of the Old Testament, it was grounded in the empty tomb. To this point, the disciples still did not understand that the Old Testament demanded that the Christ rise from the grave. Had they understood that, they would have been anticipating the resurrection. Had they understood the witness of the Old Testament, they would have known that he was going to rise from the grave, but they didn't. And so believing at this point in time in the resurrection was not on account of the scripture, but was on account of the empty tomb. And the question might come to mind, which scripture, singular, is it that testifies to the resurrection? And there are a number of them, and yet here, John likely isn't referring to a particular scripture reference, but rather to the, the whole of the Old Testament as a, a united whole, where the Old Testament itself testifies to the resurrection. In a similar fashion to the way that we see Luke 24, 27 described, where it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so even at this point, though John believes in the resurrection, it's not on account of the scripture, it's on account of the empty tomb, but he nevertheless believes. And we know that as things progress and the spirit comes upon the apostles, they begin to proclaim the resurrection from the Old Testament scriptures where they now understand that it's the scripture that foretold the resurrection. Verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now I want you to consider with me for a moment the evidence for the resurrection. You have the absence of any expectation of the resurrection among the disciples. You have the empty tomb, the severe earthquake, the angel that came down and rolled away the stone. You have the testimony of the guards, the testimony of the Sanhedrin, the appearance of angels to the women, the grave clothes being found just as they were, the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord, his ascension into heaven, his appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus, all of it providing undeniable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, my favorite evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence of a transformed life. If your life has been transformed through the power of the gospel, then your life is undeniable evidence that the tomb is empty. 
undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. You say, how so? Because the new birth and the transformation that results are entirely dependent on the resurrection. It goes back to what was said at the outset, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. But if you have been raised to walk in newness of life, then not only has Christ conquered the grave, but you have union with him and and, and do so both in his death and resurrection. The resurrection and life transformation are absolutely inseparable and they testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to see this, turn to Romans 6 for a moment. Because that's exactly where this evidence is grounded. At the end of Romans 5, Paul makes a phenomenal statement. Where in verse 20 and following, he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, here it is, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul anticipates the objection that's going to come on the heels of that. In verse 1 of Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. A transformed life is evidence that you have been joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. Newness of life is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A transformed life through the power of the gospel is glorious evidence of the empty tomb. And so if you know that you have been transformed by the gospel, whereby you know that your life gives testimony to the resurrected Christ, Regardless of where you are in this moment or where you've been in recent days, I exhort you to live, Christian, to live in light of the resurrection, to live in light of the power that is towards you who believe Ephesians 1. The very same power that rose Jesus from the dead is toward you. And so live. Live the life you've been called to live. Live in accord with the word of God. Live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. Now, second, the appearance of Jesus. The appearance of Jesus. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So at some point, Mary had gone back to the tomb. She had reported to Peter and John, John and Peter then ran to the tomb. At some point thereafter, Mary had arrived, and we would gather then that Peter and John 
had already left as well. So Mary has returned to the tomb, and she is there at this point in time on her own. Rest of verse 11. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And again, the presence of angels is evidence of the activity of God. This should have signaled to Mary that something has happened here. And John indicates that Mary saw two of them and doesn't say anything about her not recognizing them. And yet her response is puzzling because she seems completely unfazed by the presence of these angels. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And why was she weeping? She was weeping because Jesus had died and because the, the tomb was now empty, empty and she believed that someone had taken the body. And yet we know she was seeking the living one among the dead. And this question was intended to assist her to move beyond her initial assessment of things, to reconsider why it is that she's weeping. This wasn't a time for weeping, but for rejoicing. And yet, rest of verse 13, she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And so Mary remains settled in her evaluation of things. Someone has taken the body of Jesus. And then for some reason, her attention is drawn away from the tomb. Because verse 14 says this, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. What made her turn? Best guess is that she heard a noise behind her. She heard Jesus approaching, though she didn't know that it was Jesus. She has just laid her eyes on the resurrected Christ and yet hasn't recognized him. And this signals something of the resurrection body of Jesus. There is both continuity and discontinuity between his earthly and heavenly bodies. While on the one hand, in his re resurrected state, he can be touched, can eat, and still bears the marks of the kind of death he had suffered. On the other, he can apparently pass through grave clothes, can suddenly appear in a locked room, and sometimes isn't initially recognized as here and as he'll later not be recognized initially in John 21 when he's on the beach. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Two seemingly straightforward questions that after the fact would have warranted deeper reflection. The first is the exact repeat of the question asked by the angels. Woman, why are you weeping? Again, this was no time for that. And the second, as one commentator writes, becomes an invitation to reflect on the kind of Messiah she was expecting. 
and thus to widen her horizons and to recognize that as grand as her devotion to him was, and it was grand, her estimate of him was still far too small. And so Jesus asks, whom are you seeking? Surely not a dead Messiah. But rest of verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She took the inquiry as mere courtesy, a stranger expressing concern. But all it took was for Jesus to say her name the same way he always did. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And you just try and imagine the joy that would have filled her heart She now knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the Lord had said in his farewell discourse, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And so she did what anyone would do at that point. She clings to him. So verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. And then he says this, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. A difficult statement. That Mary is clinging to Jesus would seem to indicate that she does not want Jesus to go. She never again wants to be apart from her Lord. And yet, Jesus exhorts her to stop and says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Which likely means one of two things. Either that Jesus must depart in the ascension, at which time Mary will have union with him through the Spirit and will be able to cling to him, enjoying unbreakable fellowship, then it will be time to cling to him through the Spirit by faith, or that though he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, he isn't going to ascend immediately. And therefore, she has no reason to cling to him now as he will continue to appear to them over the course of 40 days, Acts 1. Either way, this was not a time for weeping, nor was it a time for clinging. She had a job to do so, rest of verse 17, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. This is the first time in John's gospel that his disciples, and by extension us, are referred to as his brethren. And this is bound up in the very purpose of redemption. Listen to this. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many what? Brethren. Romans 8, 29. 
They had been called slaves. They had been called friends. Now brothers. And Jesus says, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Where I ascend is expressed in the present tense. It's as though he's in the process of ascending. Indicating that though he has not yet ascended, his ascension is imminent. And providing the occasion on which to declare the newly established relationship between them and the Father, where Jesus can say, my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Which expresses both similarity and dissimilarity since Jesus is son by what? By nature. Whereas we are sons by what? Adoption. As John wrote in the first chapter of this gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 and 13. And so Jesus tells Mary to stop clinging to him. Mary stops. And then verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I mean, you just can't imagine what that would have been like for them. And in particular for Mary, who had come to see and even touch the risen Lord. And I want to revisit the significance of the ascension for a moment. Because though counterintuitive, Jesus says his departure is to our advantage. Remember, John 16, verse 7. He says there, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is to our advantage because it is better to have the internal indwelling spirit than to have the external abiding Christ. And to appreciate the nature of the ascension, just turn a page over, likely in your Bible, to Acts chapter 1, where the ascension is described. Luke indicates in verse 3 that Jesus had appeared to them over the course of 40 days. And you'll note that when Jesus was with the disciples, he was appearing to them. During his earthly ministry, he was with them all the time. They slept together, they ate together, but now he appears to them. So something has changed. He's in the process of ascending, and he only appears to them. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or ethics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
Verse 9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That was the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And then in accord with the promise, the Spirit came upon them in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where they had received power from on high to witness to the resurrected Christ and turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. And I want you to consider life in the spirit for a moment. And so turn to Romans 8, because you're going to see how the language of Romans 8 in connection with the coming of the spirit, which we know is inseparable from the ascension, brings forth this language of us being children of God, heirs with Christ. And to start with, look at verse nine. Paul says there, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Which is to say this, that all who are in Christ and therefore all who are truly saved have the spirit of God. And that indicates that we belong to him. If you do not have the Spirit of God, then you do not have Christ. Skip down to verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The evidence that you have the Spirit is that you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, it's evidence that you are a son of God. Verse 15. For if you have, for rather, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit who brings us into this new relationship where we are adopted children of God, ushering us into this fellowship where God is our Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So we aren't just children of God, we are heirs with Christ and fellow heirs, or heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, whereby we have a future inheritance, which Peter says is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, being reserved in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1, 4, 
and is to be inherited, as Paul indicates here, when we are finally glorified with Christ, when the goal of our salvation is realized. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Where the, the sufferings of this present time describe the period between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. When at his coming, the glory described here will be revealed. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Whereas you'll see the revealing of the sons of God coincides with the redemption of our body and glorification. So that here, Paul is describing the state of creation during the period leading up to the second coming of Christ. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Where Paul anticipates that even the curse that remains upon the earth at present will be lifted, at which time the earth will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so in the same way that we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly body, our, our heavenly tent, groaning within ourselves, the creation groans as well within itself as it eagerly awaits the very same thing, since at that time it will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. This is our hope. And it's our only hope. That though this time is gonna be characterized by sufferings, present sufferings, that there is a glory that is to be revealed, the redemption of our body, at which time the new creation that broke in through the resurrection of Christ will actually be unleashed on creation itself. At the moment, the only aspect of creation that's being renewed is what? Believers. We're being renewed on the inside. The Apostle Paul describes this in Colossians chapter three, this renewal that is taking place. Where in Colossians 3 and verse 9 and following, it says this, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and to put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We are undergoing a renewal, a, a recreation as it were. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so this is our hope. 
that the very new creation that broke in through the resurrection of Christ, it has broke in on our own lives, will at the second coming of Christ, when our glorification comes, the redemption of our body will actually bring about a, a recreation, a new creation to the created order. And not only is this our hope, it is our only hope which is why Peter exhorts you to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. A hope that is rooted and grounded in the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ. And Mary got to experience the very beginnings of that. being at the tomb looking for the body of Jesus. She witnesses the resurrection of Christ, has joy that fills her heart, and then with that joy and excitement runs again to Peter, John, and the rest to announce to them what she has seen and to tell them all the Lord had said to her. Just amazing. The resurrection is no mere footnote. In the flow of redemptive history, everything hinges on the resurrection. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are so thankful to be able to relive this portion of Scripture to put ourselves in the sandals of Mary and experience what she experienced on that day. And even John and Peter, what excitement would have filled their hearts. Father, we are so grateful for the resurrection, grateful for the empty tomb, grateful for the breaking in of the new creation through the resurrection and even how that has broken on us whereby we are new creatures in Christ. And Father God, we long for the completion of that creation. We long for the redemption of our body and we, we long for it even that the creation itself would be delivered from its slavery to corruption and that all things would glorify you as they should. We long for the day in Jesus' name, amen.